Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Very well. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's been a busy old week again. I've been dashing around. Um, I had a few sporting misadventures of my own. Uh, <laughs> I was racing racing on four wheels at Donington, Donington Park at the weekend in the Sports Prototype Cup. Um, so I've been racing cars for a few years now, as you know. Um, um, and this is, yeah, it was basically, I was at the last race on the Sunday and it'd been perfect weather all week, all weekend. And then, as we were in the collecting area, waiting to roll out onto the track, it just started to spot with rain, and it was it wasn't heavy enough that we could change onto wets. So the race started, and it was dry, and then it started to properly rain, and it was just chaos because it was <laughs> it's not F one, you know, you can't just you don't just pop into the pits and do a two second tire change and back out. It's like thirty odd seconds if you're lucky, probably more actually, closer to a minute you're going to lose if you change your tire. So you've got to be really sure. That you're you definitely want to go on wets. So it was um, undrivable, surely. Then well, it was it was kind of half and half. It was yeah. it was the top end of the circuit was wet. The the other half was a little bit wet. There was still a dry line on some of the track. It was just it, you just didn't know what to do. It's only a half hour race, so it was just a bit chaotic. And then I was doing well. And sort of, I was I was making gaining places. I was up to I think I was up to third or fourth overall, and. Coming out of the, the bottom hairpin, I just gave it a little bit too much too soon and had a sort of half spin, lost a few places, got back on, and then the safety car came out. Oh. And then and then it was it was it was all going fine. Then I lost I lost power steering, which was quite tricky because <laughs> the power <laughs> steering was quite quite integral to everything. But then it was great and we, kind of the, the rain stopped, so it was a bit greasy, but actually it helped me because my car was a bit underpowered. And yeah, I had a lot of fun. I had a bit of contact, somebody drove into me. Took out the front left corner of the car, but got round, finished third in class. So I got a little plastic trophy, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was really good fun. Really, I just, I just love it. It's great does it fun. sort of does it? Has it replaced the competitive edge for you that you got from the cycling? I realise it's it's different, but as, as did you kind of yeah. live that life through it? Yeah, yeah. Looking back now, I think it was important to find something. I, I didn't look for it to replace. I didn't, you know, wasn't looking for something to replace cycling, mm-hmm. but. I needed something a little bit just to get those competitive juices flowing and, and but almost like a decompression from the intensity of, of cycling, which was about, you know, your whole life was focused on this one thing. Whereas yeah. now it's a hobby really. And I, I, I love doing it. And when you're on the track, nothing else matters. You know, you're completely focused for that half hour in the race. You're not thinking about, you know, your family, apologies to my family. Um, <laughs> you're not thinking about work. You're not thinking about anything. It's just about, you know, defending from the guy behind or trying to pass the one in front and next breaking point apex pick up all that stuff it's just so exciting absolutely love it um so yeah basically midlife crisis and yeah it was a great great weekend back into doing the podcast though what about you what what were you up to last week so i've got well i've got queen's tennis happening at the moment so i'm obviously not there today i'm in my living room um but they're yesterday and they're later in the week so andy murray cameron norrie people like that playing so it's kind of a good 
chance to get interviews in the bag ahead of Wimbledon and watch a bit of tennis and write about that. So it's a nice, nice place to be. It's not as big and crazy. Have you done? Have you ever been to Queens? No, I've never no. been been to Wimbledon a couple of times, but um, um, it's yeah, a bit, it's... it's a bit less mad um, than Wimbledon, but but great fun and you know you get some I mean, really good. You know, Grigor Dimitrov, who's what, like normally a seeded player at, at a Grand Slam, had to come through qualifying to to, to get wow. into Queen. So, so it sort of shows how good the fields are. So, yeah, I think I'm back there on Thursday again. But so, who have we got on today then, Matt? Ah, uh, we've got Rhys James on today. Um, ah. So, and I think he's got a fair bit of sport to chat about. I, I don't want to mm. sort of um, say anything beforehand because he'll have his own ideas what he wants to talk about. But yeah, I think he, I mean he's done sporting podcasts. He's a, a big football fan. Yeah, he should he should be good value on the sports stuff, and obviously very funny with it as well. Um, I do that thing of watching clips of whoever's coming on. I spend way too much time on YouTube watching clips <laughs> of our research, coming Matt. We're not you're not wasting time. You're doing research. Just li- li- yeah. little clips of him doing you know various um, TV shows, lovely little nuggets. So yeah, it gets me in the sort of mood for it. Do you do the same? Yeah, I, I saw a good a good little. Um, it was a roast battle between him and one of our previous guests, Lloyd Griffith, who are. I believe they're good mates. Um, I don't know if you saw that one. It was I hadn't, no. it was pretty brutal. Yeah, they, they were, the gloves <laughs> the gloves were off. <laughs> they weren't pulling any punches, taking the absolute mickey out of each other um, on stage in front of a, a front of an audience. But yeah, that was that was good. And he's he's always on the you know the mock the week and the, mm. the panel shows and stuff. Just incredibly quick witted. Um, I can't believe he's only thirty two as well. Yeah, it's amazing. He feels he's been like he's been... the, well, he looks like he's <laughs> drinking from the fountain of youth. Like he's got this. <laughs> Blemish-free skin. He looks like he's about twenty-one, and he. But he seems like he's been in a good way. He seems like he's been on the circuit for for, for a fair old time as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a well-established name, and we're very lucky to have him on. Yes, and I think he's a natural podcaster, so he'll help us when we uh, when we can't do uh, <laughs> 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 this hole we find ourselves in. Well, this is yeah, going exactly. better. This is going better than the one the other day where we had to record endless um, number of times mm. to get it right. But uh, got there in the end, though. Hello, hey. Reese. Hello, how are you? Very well, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. Sorry about the delay. I just spilled uh, some coffee. Oh, uh, how annoying. But it's all, we're fine. We're all sorted. <laughs> Not milk then? No. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> little segue there. Very into nice, very nice. Yeah, very <laughs> nice. I've done my homework. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that. Lovely bit of research there. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> all about the preparation. It's all about the preparation. So how are you doing anyway? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, I'm looking forward to this. Thank you very much for asking me. Oh, it's great to have you on. Yeah, it's basically an excuse for us to get all our comedy heroes on and chat to them and uh, pick their brains about sport and about anything, really. Yeah, just a bit of fun. So, um, yeah, what, what's your, you're, you're a bit of a football man, aren't you? Yeah, big football fan. Uh, I'm not a massive football player. I've just started playing in a game that is designed for, like, basically weeds for, for losers. Um, I mean, that's my interpretation of it. As someone who is deeply competitive, but not skilled, it's like the worst combination of things. Like I, I really care, but I'm not that good at anything. But there's a football game that got set up by some comics to make it. So there's Comedians Football on Tuesday, which is really competitive that I've uh, never actually attended because it's too far away from my house and I'm lazy. Mm-hmm. But there's this other one on a Saturday from a different group that's all about being supportive and just anyone can play no matter the level and it's all just a bit of fun. And the reason I like playing in that game so much is because I am one of the best. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me one of the best. I thrive in the other game, too much pressure. I blend into the crowd. That's where I want to be. Find your level 
Actually, That's no, it. find a level below you. <laughs> Very much the opposite of what you would have gone through, Chris. Find a level underneath you and thrive in that. That's what I'm looking for at all big, times. Big fish in a small pond. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that at all, mate. Nothing wrong with that. Good. Okay, good to hear it from you. Do you when do you make the plunge <laughs> to the Tuesday night game, though? When do you get enough confidence from the Saturday to... to, to well, exactly, it? yeah. I think well, genuinely... When it moves location, I will start going <laughs> to that match. But um, as it is, it's like, because it's in the day, actually, the Tuesday game. So it's like, uh, with the travel involved, it's like a full day commitment to just oh, have wow. a kick about. And I can't, because I, I have in my head that I can't do that because I'm too busy and successful, which is not the case <laughs> at all. I mean, it's Tuesday right now. <laughs> and I'm available to speak to you guys. I can be that's here. why. That's why you t- it's a great excuse. We could be your excuse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing. I'm doing an important podcast. Can't be there having a kick about with Ellis James. Don't tell him Matt, how many people are listening because uh, <laughs> when he finds out, it's only just in the double figures. He'll be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So who else? Who else plays in the, in this uh, in the Tuesday night one? What sort of comedy people are Tuesday are game? In that I think Tuesday I think game? the people who, the people who play in that one, um, Lloyd Griffith. Oh, I co-host oh, yeah. the podcast with. He plays in goal, of course. He never shuts up about that. Um, <laughs> I believe it's people like it's, I think it's organised by Daniel Kitson, Ellis James plays, Mark Steele, um, Ian Stone. I believe Lee Mack makes an appearance every now and then. Tim Key, people like that. I think. Um, I, oh, wow. I mean, I, yeah, I'm really not involved in that game uh, at all. But maybe one day, maybe one day I'll brave it. You can do it. We've had Lloyd on before on the on the podcast and he was brilliant oh, yeah. and we had, yeah, we chatted about his, his goalkeeping and uh, all the other football-related chat as well. But I saw a great little clip on, doing my research, obviously, um, yeah. a little roast battle between the two of you, which was absolutely brutal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was horrible, wasn't it? I don't, you know what? I actually don't look back on that um, that fondly. I'm glad. I mean, we did it at the time. It was like a good TV opportunity at the time for lots of comics. And it was like a good, you know, there was like, they don't, don't exist as much anymore, I don't think. But there was like a few good TV shows you could get on when you were on the newer side in comedy um, that would help you sort of like climb the ladder to the sort of slightly more established shows. And that was one of them. A lot of people's first show. And then they had some big names doing it as well. But yeah, it's weird because I just like, it was fun to write and it was fun to do against Lloyd. And I'm glad it was against Lloyd because he is my friend. I've known him for, you know, 15 years or whatever. But, you know, I just basically said a bunch of fat jokes to a guy. And then, <laughs> then it, I don't feel good about it in hindsight. <laughs> but, you know, some of them were quite funny. But, you know, I wish I'd mixed it up a bit more, actually, because just everything I did was just effectively, Lloyd, you are fat. <laughs> and I could have been more creative than that, I think. Because, you know, there's se- several things wrong with his personality for a start. <laughs> I didn't even yeah. touch on. Yeah, but it was it was funny. But yeah, as you say, it's the sort of thing you can only do with a friend. You couldn't, you know, it's, yeah, because yeah, you know that it comes from a place of love, obviously. Well, exactly, exactly, and that's why in that roast battle, there's a moment where I say something and Lloyd says, "I thought we vetoed talking about that." And then you go, "Yeah, imagine if I'd done that to someone I don't know. I knew Lloyd would be fine with it and could take it." So it was all right. But if it was just a stranger had vetoed something and I just went fully in on them, straight in, I, yeah, exactly. So you and I do, uh, is it Fit and Proper? That's the podcast together. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, the premise is that people come on and they sort of take over. Well, it was basically, we started it around the time of like all those big conversations about football club ownership, mainly with Abramovich and what was going to happen next when the talk was that Abramovich sort of wants out at Chelsea. And it's sort of increasingly relevant with all the, you know, with the Qatar potential takeover at Man United and all that sort of stuff, the various Saudi investments going on, is that like, 
we do a lot of we all like to do a lot of complaining about how our club is run or even how other clubs are run but it's sort of like well this is your opportunity you hypothetically now do run a club whether it's your club or not what are you going to do with it now typically we have sort of comedians on rather than businessmen so they tend to approach it in a very silly fashion they don't take it very seriously and they'll do things without outside of the, the realms of physics and they'll bring back legends to play in their prime and stuff like that or they'll make it so that who is it that built the stadium so that it you like a roller coaster simulator it moves with the action of the game so that you're constantly you can never get distracted and look at your phone or anything because like if there's an attack then your seat turns and it moves forward when the shot's <laughs> taken and stuff and as a result then because it was also like that one was Alfie Brown and he made it really stag do anyway so there was a lot of drinking involved so because it was moving so much and there'd been so much drinking there had to be a, a vomit trough at the front <laughs> and please say so, you know what I mean is people do not take it very seriously none of this is possible if your club started investing in a vomit trough you'd you'd be asking some questions Although I'm a Spurs fan, I'd be happy if they invested in anything at this point. So what, what would you suggest for Spurs then? You know, what would you be looking to change? Uh, sign one player. I would say, <laughs> could you sign one player, please? Um, oh, all sorts of stuff. I don't know, actually. It's interesting because we get asked that all the time what we would do. I, I imagine Lloyd's got loads of ideas for what he'd do at Grimsby. Spurs is such a mess, I think, that I don't... Yeah, I sort of don't know where to begin. Um, despite the fact we've got this great new stadium, I'd probably just knock it down and go back to the old one. Um, just to, just to be very frustrating. Or, you know what I would do? Because here's what I would do to appease the fans, because the fans are all, you know, despite this great stadium, there's still some fans who are like, but it doesn't, it's not like White Hart Lane. So I would bring back the pillars at White Hart Lane and just put them into the new stadium so that at least some people still had a terrible view. (laughs) So that we could, (laughs) we could go, look, this is what you wanted. This is what you wanted. And yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I, I don't is, know. Is, is Daniel, is Daniel Levy the problem? Because he gets a lot of heat from the from the fans, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. I look, I sort of feel a bit. I'm on the. I'm really going to sit on the fence with it because mm. I would like to go on the pitch at halftime, but also <laughs> because <laughs> don't burn your bridges. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also because I've had a season ticket at Spurs for twenty years. And when I started going, we would finish 11th every season, sort of at best. And then, you know, Martin Yol came in and we, he got us fifth. Then it was Harry Redknapp and he started getting us Champions League and whatnot. And then Pochettino just changed all of our perspective and all of our expectations on what Spurs are as a club because we, had a, we were in a couple of title challenges or whatever and got to a Champions League final. Everyone thought that that was the average. And so anything worse than that is terrible. And you go, no, no, just it wasn't very long ago that we were mid, completely a mid-table side who would occasionally go on a bit of a cup run and we were just a counter-attacking team that was soft-centred and people would say, lads, it's Spurs about. So, and it's, it's in Daniel Levy's time that he, we've gone from that mid-table team to a expected Champions League qualification team. My worry is maybe that's the ceiling. So, like, it's great that Daniel Levy's got us there. Maybe that's the ceiling because it has faltered. And I do think, you know, the appointments of Mourinho and Conte were a little bit... Um, what's your swearing policy on this podcast? Go for, for it. it. We can always edit okay. it out if it's... <laughs> I found those appointments to be a little bit star fuckery, if you ask me. <laughs> felt like he saw the opportunity to meet a couple of celebrities and uh, he was like, oh my God, Jose Mourinho, blinded by the lights, put them in when we all knew they were the wrong appointments for us. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 who can blame individuals? It all adds up, you know. It's the history of Tottenham, as um, 
Chiellini once said. Will, will Harry Kane go though? That's the fear, isn't it? Because I mean, you rely on him so heavily, and he's being linked to going elsewhere. But I don't know where the latest is on that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he is a hostage. <laughs> That's what we have to remember. We, he is. He's. He's a. He's a hostage that knows that the key to his handcuffs arrives in his lap in one year's time. So it's a really weird situation where he's like, I, to be honest, I can't. He won't. I don't think he would go to Chelsea. Um. I can't see Daniel Levy letting him go to Man United. Right. I think Daniel Levy is going to make the mistake of thinking that Spurs fans would rather he goes for free in a year, but not to Man United this year. It goes to like Real Madrid or something for free than we have 100 million. And I think all Spurs fans now are like, look, obviously in an ideal world, you'd stay and you sign a new contract. But given the situation, it's basically like fly away, my pretty and just get some success and put all these Twitter idiots to bed because it's driving me a bit mad. I've de- I deleted Twitter off my phone purely. Because, like Lots of performers and comedians will do it because of trolling they get directly. I deleted Twitter because I can't read another bad thing about Harry Kane. I, it upsets me so much that I was reading it every time anything happens. It's, oh, Harry Kane never won a trophy. Oh, I missed a penalty. Got to get it rid of it for my own mental health. So God knows if he's got it. If Harry Kane's got Twitter, then he's... Must be having an absolute <laughs> horrible time. You can't, you can't imagine these guys going on Twitter. Surely not. I mean, it's an absolute cesspit. But when it comes to, to yeah. football in particular, fans are just so tribal. There's no kind of, there's no balance. It's just abuse. Exactly. And, and they're abusing their own fans, their own players as well. Yeah, that's so the weirdest thing, isn't it? That it's like, you, sort of, no one's rushing to defend you. It's, yeah. there's no one like on your side going, no, no, I think this person is great because of this. It's all just... It's all abuse. But then like players like Richarlison, and maybe that's, you know, he's not your typical player. There's loads of examples of Richarlison replying to trolls and saying I, mad stuff in response that surely is like not media training at all. And that's obviously I, great to watch. I, I can't, yeah, it's quite shocking the level or just the, the ferocity of responses from football fans, from the football community on social media. So I newly was just getting into Twitter. This is about 2010. And I didn't really know what Twitter was about. And I just, I was out in Australia and I was on a training camp and I thought, oh, I might start, you know, taking pictures and documenting what I'm doing and getting into this newfangled thing called Twitter. And um, anyway, I, I, you know, went to bed, you know, in Australia, woke up in the morning and obviously it was daytime over here and Twitter was just going wild. And there was always people saying, Chris, I you wanker, Chris, I this. You. And I was like, <laughs> What have I done? You know, like what? I genuinely didn't. What the hell's going on? And it was it was all really bad stuff. And then and then it was like you know you need glasses and you should have gone to Specsavers. And I was thinking, <laughs> what? What's anyway? There's a referee called, or there was a referee called Chris Foy. Um, so I so, then, so that was the first the first lesson about Twitter is that um, you know right. It's people are people don't really do this. They just launch. They just type out what they think. They don't they don't check. They just go for it. And and it yeah. can be quite nasty. And then the second lesson I learned was, so I, I did a little tweet just saying, um, just to let you know, um, I'm not leave, living a second life, a double life as a premiership <laughs> referee, um, you know, and yeah. I don't need to go to Specsavers. And I did a little hashtag, why not Foy? And then went to bed that night, the next night, and then woke up the next morning. And you know how, like, on your email um, homepage, there's the news and stuff on it, mm. BT, Yahoo, whatever it was. I, I got up the next morning, opened my email, and it was a picture of my face staring back at me. 
and it was it made the news it made the, the national news about, <laughs> about me being trolled by and it was Spurs fans I've forgotten that it was Spurs oh, was fans it? Uh, probably me <laughs> it was your lot it was your lot um, I bet so, if you yeah. search my, my tweet I bet if you search my Twitter name and your <laughs> Twitter name there's me calling you a blind yes. freak yeah so so yeah that was my that was my intro to uh, what to I took from that Chris is that the, the lesson there is that you've got to stop going to bed because yeah. every That's time bad. you do that yeah you wake up and something's gone crazy. Or stop going to Australia. Just stay in Britain. Yeah. Stay in the rain. Stay in the dark. Be in the time yeah. zone. It's getting Naturally. bad now as well. There's a there's a Scottish um, Tory MP called Craig Hoy. Craig, you're getting you're getting them for Craig Hoy. So that's so they're, too, yeah, yeah, people are just uh, yeah. I mean it's it's just uh, I guess it's C Hoy, but um, but yeah. I, no, I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter now, but um, yeah, occasionally I get the odd uh, abusive message. I think. Can't be for me, surely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah. it is for me. No, they, no, they party gate. Everyone going for bad offside decisions and party gate. Yeah, exactly. God, how, how pissed was I in twenty twenty? What have I been up to? <laughs> um, well, naturally, as someone called Reese James, I get a lot of tweets saying, uh, "Mate, when are you back from injury? I've got Ooh. you in my fantasy team. What's going on?" Um, uh, and I get right. the occasional Ellis James mix up as well. Oh, really? Someone recently, someone recently hired me for a voiceover, and then in between doing the voiceover, it was like over Zoom this voiceover job, and then in between there, this guy was like, um, "Yeah, I came to see you a couple of years ago at the Soho Theatre. You had that great bit about like um, that phrase, the phrase, don't touch what you can't afford.'" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, that's Ellis James. That's Ooh. a different person." And I was just thinking, "Oh no, do you think that you've hired? <laughs> do I have to do a Welsh accent?" <laughs> I mean, it- that's all right. You got the gig. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I got the gig. But my yeah. God, it was very offensive what I did. I mean, I've ruined <laughs> Fireman Sam for a start. <laughs> so, was it always football for you as a kid? Was that when you when you were young, when you were at school? What kind of sports were you into? Did you enjoy PE at school? Were you, you know, was that something um, you looked forward to? I was really small at school, uh, so I d- didn't wildly look forward to any of it. I, it's weird because I wasn't like unnatural at any sport. I wasn't like a natural talent. I just mean like it didn't, it did, none of them came very difficultly to me that much. So like I could do all of it, but I, it's like I was saying before about how like I wasn't the best at anything naturally. And I'm sort of like, my instinct is quite lazy. So uh, and then I really wasn't into hard work. It wasn't really until comedy and sort of writing that I got into the idea of hard work and being a bit relentless with it. So until then, I hadn't learned that. So like anything that, that didn't wasn't just like really easy that I wasn't then immediately like top 5%. I was just like, ah, forget that. So like I was focusing on things like drama and uh, English. That sort of stuff is where I was just like, definitely about any like creative writing stuff. I was just like clearly getting them the highest praise. When it came to football, I was just not athletic enough and not built athletically enough. I played golf as a kid, actually, and had golf lessons when I was about 10. And then my habit as a kid is I would, you know, you know, get into something for a week, make my parents buy all the gear and then sack it off. Is <laughs> what I did. I just went trial and error with everything. And golf was one of those things. I've literally just got back into golf in the last like month or so. And I can see that now I'm just doing what I did as a kid, but it's my money. So I've just like bought all these golf clubs, you know, I've went and done a couple of rounds or whatever. And I can already tell like, ah, I'm probably going to. But you must be pretty good. You know, if you were to get to start when you were 10, when you're all bendy and flexible and you can, Mm. you know, you watch these youngsters playing in their swing on the driving range and they just look 
it looks so easy and effortless. Whereas when you get to your 40s, I started trying to play golf. I think I was about 37, 38. I first went down and hit a few balls and you just realise how tight and stiff you are and you can't actually, yeah. you can't swing it properly. You must be pretty yeah. good at it. Are you you're sort of pretty reasonable? You'd think so. Mm. Um, <laughs> I The problem I've got is I... I'm a little bit obsessed with the TikTok algorithm because like literally I just started going to the driving range, which obviously does involve Googling driving range and, you know, organizing that and to book it and stuff. But then my TikTok algorithm just went insane with every video was just how to fix your swing, how to fix your swing. Here's how to be, here's how to be good at golf. And now I'm in that period of playing where because you're trying to do it properly, so you're no longer doing it instinctually, you get a lot worse before you get better. So now I'm in that bit where it's like, if you get through this, you will be good. You will be really good. I had it with tennis as well. I got really into tennis in lockdown. And it was because it was there was a tennis court opposite my house and it was one of the safest sports to play or whatever. Um, but I, I got much worse for a bit before I got better after like learning how to properly swing and how to prop like, do you know what I mean? How to think of actual tactics and where to be on the court and all that. And it's the same with golf at the moment where TikTok is currently ruining it, but will... <laughs> eventually improve it but no i don't have any of the things where like oh because i learned the basics as a kid those basics are still just there mm. i've retained no information except a memory of getting a really good birdie on a par three once chipping in from quite far out um hitting the flag and going in and it I th i've genuinely my memory is that i retired from golf after that shot <laughs> that at 10 years old i chipped in from about 40 yards everyone clapped and i said to my dad that day that's it i'm done it will never get better, and it never has. Well, that's the problem with golf, though. You do an amazing thing like that, and you're on an yeah. absolute cloud nine. You think, I can take on Rory McIlroy, and this is this is easy. And then you go to the next tee, and you just smash it into the forest to the left. Exactly. It's just, like It's just, I can't, I don't have the patience to be good enough at it, because it just goes so horribly wrong from one shot to the next. Yeah, and that's what's so, but that's the, that's the good thing about the fact, I think golf probably more than any other sport, when you watch the absolute elite, yeah. The fact that they fuck it up as well. The fact that you see McElroy sometimes <laughs> shank it or like they land in the water or whatever. It makes you go, oh, right. This sport is insanely difficult. What are we all doing? <laughs> this is the absolute elite who played since they were kids and are as good as it gets. They're like, even the pros that you see play, you know, at a club, just the club pro that you think is a genius and is amazing, are nowhere near the level of these guys on like the PGA Tour. And then you watch them shank it and you think, right. Fine. And it's similar, I think, with like, you know, a footballer taking a bad shot or whatever. But it's not quite the same as it's something satisfying about a golfer doing it. Because <laughs> golf is so like you have time and it's so measured. Whereas football, you're like, well, it's very of that second and you had to act in that moment. Whereas golf, you know, how many practice swings are you doing and all that right. sort of stuff. And for them to still mess it up, it makes me just go, oh, thank God. I'm as good as <laughs> I'm as good as McElroy is once every 50 shots. But I'm not every shot. <laughs> I, so I play, the last time I played must have been about three or four years ago. And then the time before that was played about four or five years ago. And the the, down, the, the downside of that is you don't get any better, but the, the upside is you don't get any worse. So that I've hit this right. kind of bottom, this plateau, <laughs> yeah, yeah. where it's not physically possible to get any worse. And, yeah. and and because you're not practicing, you're not actually, you know, like you're saying, you you go through a period of deteriorating before you come through and get better. I'm at this this kind of genuinely, I'm not just being, it's not yeah. false modesty. I'm awful and there's been numerous times where i've gone for rounds of golf with people who just think i'm being modest by saying oh, i'm because everyone says oh i'm terrible at golf and then yeah, yeah yeah you know i'm only a 15 handicap what that's pretty good you know yeah, yeah. For me, you've got you a know, handicap 
So I, you know, if I, I think I've probably cracked a hundred, you know, four or five times ever. So that's how mm. bad I am. And that's, that's a freakishly good round for me. So, um, yeah, on the whole, it's just way too much power, no control. Yeah. My, the, the practice swing, you know, the, the, you kind of nice and steady. Yeah. Nice and steady. This yeah. is how it's going to be. And then I get to the back swing on the actual shot and then the swing of my head goes, hit it. Hit it and as hard as you can. Whack. <laughs> yeah. And then it's, and you can't even find the ball. You'll have to take another one. And you know, it's just it's just relentless. And you can tell people get really frustrated playing golf with me because it's just it takes forever because I'm always off in the bushes trying to find it and just yeah, I'm the same ball, as you. Chris, you know, God, I'm the exact but, same. I mean, the other day I played with my friend the other, a couple of days ago, and I said we were on like a hole six, and I said, you know what, this is progress because we're on hole six and I've not lost a ball yet. Hmm. And then. I proceeded to lose nine balls over the rest of the round. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and literally the, the next shot, I lost the ball. Um, and as this. soon as I said it, I thought, why have I said that, you idiot? It's like stepping up and going, I've never missed a penalty. So this one in the World Cup final should be fine. Um, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Do people assume that you're amazing at all sports then? Because you've had so much success in, in sport, do they go, well, oh, you're probably brilliant at everything? I think, I think there is that assumption because in sports like, I don't know, like, well, like Tim Hemman is an amazing golfer as well as being an amazing tennis player. I think sports where you've got hand-to-eye coordination, if it's something, you know, the dynamic sport, mm. there does tend to be a crossover where you see a lot of people that are good at, you know, other sports other than just their professional sport that they compete in. But cycling, it's it's way more, it's very controlled. You know, basically anyone could ride a bike. It's just about how hard you can turn the pedals. So what I have or what I had in cycling, it doesn't really translate well to other sports. And in many ways, it makes you very heavy-handed and heavy-footed you know, heavy on right, whatever you yeah. do. And your, your instinct is to, to absolutely go 100% in whatever you need to do. But in most sports, it's not about hitting as hard as you can, or especially golf. Yeah, it's yeah. control. Yeah. Oh, so it's I find it really hard. You know, my yeah, my instinct is go 100, percent and that's that's not what you need. So I was going to say, in something like superstars, would it be dreadful then? You know, one of those things when you pit, mm. your, pit yourself yeah. against other sports across all those different disciplines, which is a great well, watch. Funny you should mention that. I did. I did superstars. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, 2004, and it was clearly they had a few slots available after the Olympics. So it was just, it was filmed two weeks after the Olympics in Athens. And they obviously had a few slots open for any athletes that might do well, that we could bring in that, you know, people remember from the games two weeks ago, as well as the kind of big names that were invited a, a year in advance or whatever. So I was one of those ones that got invited at the last minute. And I thought, yeah, sounds great. I love, you know, I remember watching it as a kid. This looks fun. Kind of assumed that everybody would turn up. And we were all sports people, so we're all competitive. But I kind of assumed that everyone was in the same boat as me, where you would turn up having done no preparation or practice. And I got there the night before filming, and I was going to go down to the swimming pool. So they were going to give me a shot paddling in, the, in a, a kayak. I'd never been in a kayak before. 
and they were like, you know, we're, we're just for safety, we'll show you how you, you would get out of the roll if you if you go upside down, if you, if you capsize. And as I was going down, there was one of the other guys and uh, basically had his own paddle with him, like, you know, it brought his own paddle from home kind of thing. And I said, are you going to come down to the pool? He goes, oh, no, no, mate, I'm just resting up for tomorrow. You know, I've kind of the training's all done. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, oh, my God, this is, I think I've bitten up more than I can chew here. And, um, yeah, it didn't go that well, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah, there was... Whoever that was with their own paddle, better of one. <laughs> because you, the my mate, I remember my mate telling me the story of, on Freshers Week at university, they went bowling. Him and, like, all the house he was living in, the halls. They all went bowling. And one bloke, and this is a bold Freshers Week move, turned up with his own ball wow. and a bowling glove. <laughs> and he finished third. Oh. It's like if you're gonna if you're gonna be someone who takes that much pride and makes that kind of a statement in Freshers Week as I'm the bowling guy, you've got to, you've got to win by at least a hundred. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, turn up third. and just 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 play it cool and not let anyone know that actually, yeah, you know this is your thing. There's, yeah, it's exactly. always the way. If I do velodrome experience days, so you have you know whether it's charity days or corporate days or whatever, people can come down to the velodrome and and I help them to learn how to cycle on the track. And without exception, every single time there will be at least one person that turns up with all the gear. So there'll be, you know, say it's a, in an office, or whatever. There'll be someone that hasn't ridden a bike for twenty years, and they're like, "Oh, I'm just going to watch, and you know, I don't need to get involved." And I'm mm. like, "No, you'll be absolutely fine as long as you can ride a bike. You can, we can get you on the track, and you'll be fine. We've got the bikes here, we've got the helmet, we've got the shoes. We'll take it steady. We'll start in the flat. We'll go, you know, from the bottom of the track, build up speed, and you'll you'll be up at the top of the track by the end of the, the session, and you'll have a great time." And there's always one person who is the, the cycling guy and everyone's expecting them to do the fastest time. So at the end of the session, you do a little flying lap and you get your time on the scoreboard. And the thing is, most of these guys are women, men or women are endurance cyclists. So they're used to doing long rides. They've done, you know, these hundred yeah, mile challenges. They've ridden from Johnny Broach to Land's End. But very few are, are kind of sprinters. And really the, the flying lap is about how, how powerful you are. So usually what happens is there'll be someone who's like an ex-rugby player who turns up in the short shorts and they're not they're not looking like a cyclist but they've got a lot of power and they get up there at the end and they absolutely smash the time and the poor guy who is the cycling guy is absolutely <laughs> humiliated and can't, just yeah, can't love get that. his head around the fact that <laughs> it's not fair um, and yeah it's oh, you can see it coming a mile off but yeah, it's it's always it's always tricky. If you, if you pitch yourself as the expert, you've got to follow through. Yeah, one hundred percent. You can't be. This is my problem as well, though, because you know, because I bought these clubs, just bought these golf clubs. I'm turning up to the driving range with this great new set of golf clubs and my gloves. <laughs> then anyone who watches me, it's, I'm going about a hundred yards. I'm topping everything, and I just totally look like that old gear, no idea type guy. But you've tried. So I saw a video of you trying winter Olympic sports. Yeah. What yeah, was that yeah. like? Well, I did. I was, um, I co-hosted the uh, Team GB, the, I think it was the official Team GB podcast in the Summer Olympics with Nicola Adams and Vernon Kay. And I made the mistake of uh, thinking that everyone knew when I was joking um, and saying that I could master any Olympic sport in a couple of days. Okay, I made that mistake. I was being hubristic. Then rolls around the Winter Olympics and the producers of the show say, do you remember when you said that you could easily master any <laughs> Olympic sport? Well, why don't you go and do that? We're going to go and do like a day on each of these four what, these four sports. So I think it was skeleton, uh, curling, 
which by the way, curling, what I learned from curling is that would be a fantastic stag do activity. Um, <laughs> that's what I got from it. No disrespect to professional curlers because it's very difficult, but it was the glide is so much fun. It doesn't require anything. I believe you could do it while drinking. Probably shouldn't be, shouldn't advise that. Um, but in the way, you know, there's all these sports that now happen on stag do's that arguably shouldn't. There's like axe throwing bars open. I don't think that should be encouraged next to alcohol, but that exists in London. Um, but anyway, those sorts of things. And uh, what else did we do? Uh, speed skating and one other. I can't remember what the other one was, but um, speed skating, I uh, smashed my chin open um, oh, on geez. the lap. Yeah, it was, it, but it was like literally the last shot of the whole record. So we were away for a week all over the country doing these things. Oh, snowboarding was the other one. Um, and we were away for a week doing the whole thing. Speed skating was the last one. And I was just trying to get my time, just trying to like get my lap for a time to see if I got, you know, they had certain times I had to get it within to get a gold medal. Uh, and not a real gold medal, don't worry. It doesn't devalue <laughs> yours, actually. Um, but it just won from the sponsor. Um, but I, I did a lap and then I was going to get, I think I was going to get three attempts at this lap. So I'd done one. So I had a time on the board um, and I hadn't been told what it had to be in to get me anything, but I wanted to get my best time. And I knew I could do better than that. Cause I went a bit soft on that one. And then second lap on the first turn, I just slipped and just like landed chin first on the ice. And it was actually fine. The footage I found quite funny because I smashed my head and then, immediately i mean i remain in broadcasting mode so immediately i just sort of smile and have my hands up and i'm just like making jokes about it not realizing that in the shot blood is gushing out of my chin um and then yeah and then we went to a and e in nottingham we were doing it in nottingham got to the door of a and e it was still a little bit covidy at the time and they were like sort of not really letting you in unless you had to and i went to the door and i was like holding a thing there and i sort of showed them they were like, look, you can come in, but you're just going to be sat here for four hours holding that there. And I was like, well, I need to go back to London. And they were like, well, you might as well just sit on the train doing that and then go somewhere in London. And I was like, yeah, but it could be another four hours there. And they said, to be honest, just stick it together with some like steri strips or some tape or whatever. And I bet in the morning it's just healed over. And then I did that and it has. And oh, it's wow. so annoying because they're like, we can give you stitches, but you probably don't need stitches. And it means you won't be able to eat for a while. Just do it with that and see what happens. And it does really kind of diminish the injury, <laughs> to be honest. When you're saying to people, yeah, I was doing this thing. I just smashed my chin open. And then they're going, oh, and then what happened? Oh, my God, you must have been in hospital for days. You must have had your jaw wired shut. <laughs> no, just went to bed. Went to bed and it magicked itself better. Put a bit of super glue on it. Yeah, exactly. Pathetic. But what the, the Winter Olympic sports are pretty dangerous. I mean, do you remember the, yeah. the TV show The Jump? I mean, that yes, was cancelled yeah, yeah, because yeah. The people were getting horrendous injuries. Um, and it's, yeah, it seems like you could have done the Summer Olympic sports a lot more safely. Maybe you should do that yeah, next I'd time. Much try, rather, try the summer ones. Yeah. That would be good. Yeah, next time. I'd much rather do a lot of those ones. Um, because, yeah, I mean, skeleton as well. We were just doing that on a track. It was just like wheels on a, on a track. But it's still like, you have to like sprint really low down and then jump onto this thing that's going quite fast through the air and is going down. So it's like your instinct. Well, my instinct is like, well, don't. This will this will not yield positive results. So don't jump onto this thing. And so you're fighting against all of that to try and just like uh, just sprint as fast as you can. I mean, and that's not even on the ice. I don't know how. Obviously, it requires a lot of training and stuff. But my god, it's terrifying. I did the skeleton one. Did you do it? Did you do it down in Bath? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I did it in Bath, and in my head, 
I was pushing the sled along really fast, a dramatic dive onto yeah. it. But when you see the footage back, I'm it's like pathetic, sort of isn't it? snail's pace and sort of slowly yeah. lowering myself down onto the tray, as it were, onto the sled. It feels, yeah, it feels like you're going 100 miles an hour <laughs> yeah. and then you get your time <laughs> and you go, sorry, but how? it would have been quicker if I wasn't on it. <laughs> how did it take 14 <laughs> seconds to go that 10 yards down yeah. there? Yeah, it is embarrassing. And who came up with the idea of going head first? I mean, it's... Mm. It's mad, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Exactly. If you're going to smash into the wall, you want your feet to be first. Yeah, not, not it's absolutely, it's absolutely ridiculous. That said, you know, once you're doing it, it is quite satisfying, isn't it? You know, the wind in your face and you're yeah. looking up, going down that thing. It does feel like it's certainly like a roller coaster. But you don't just, have to turn any corners, thankfully. It's just a straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I don't know what that would be like when you start doing that. That looks. I mean, they go so fast. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and they right up on their sides. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Mm. I know. And what you were saying about those days that you do, Chris, where you teach people and they get right up on the side. I mean, that terrified me even when you were just talking about it. Well, listen, you've got to have a shot of it. I'm joking apart. You, you've, well, you've I'm sure we will map, do. Haven't you? You've, you've yeah. written the Velodrome. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We should, we is should it scary? It, it is to start with, but it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. Because it, when you stand at the top and you look down the banking for the first time, you're like, no, no, that's that's not going to that's not going to work for me. But actually, yeah. you, you, if you just slowly build up to it, it's... Yeah, it's, I'm not saying it's it's easy, but it's not it's not as bad as I expected it to be, and you get you get quite used to it. It's getting your head around the fact that if all you have to do is stay above a certain speed, yeah, and your pedal then won't. So if you imagine that the faster you go, the more you kind of lean into the corner, and the slower you go, the more upright you are. If you're completely upright, your pedal will catch the banking and then lifts your back wheel off the ground and you'll fall off. So you just got to stay above that threshold speed, which is about 20 miles an hour, which sounds maybe sounds quite quick if you're out riding the bike on the road, but actually on an indoor velodrome with no headwind, smooth surface, most people can maintain 20 miles an hour relatively easily. And and other than that, you know, the get out of jail card is to accelerate, to go harder. So if you feel you're getting a bit unstable in the corner, all you've got to do is press hard on the pedals and it makes it more stable. And Yeah, my concern with, with that advice, Chris, is that I'd be stuck in an infinite loop. <laughs> is that if I'm thinking the only way to not fall is to go faster before you know it it's been three years setting you a record yeah yeah, yeah getting, slowing down is weird because you don't have brakes so track bikes have got no brakes and you can't stop pedalling so it's a fixed a fixed wheel so you're always whenever you're moving your legs are moving some people again it's usually the cyclists that have done a bit before that have the issue with this because they're used to being out in the road and they're used to doing a bit a bit on the bike They'll do a, you know, a couple of laps, they'll cross the start finishing line and then they'll kind of go to sit up and relax and stop pedaling and the pedals keep turning and it just basically throws you right over the top of the bars. So you see folk regularly crashing because they've stopped pedaling. So the, the two golden rules are keep pedaling and, yeah. uh, and keep your pre- keep pressure on the pedals on the, on the corners and you'll be fine. But yeah, slowing down is tricky. It is kind of weird and you do have to sort of roll down to almost a stop and then you grab the barrier once you stop. If you try and grab the barrier when you're still moving, you get this kind of comedy scenario where you're pulling yourself up the bike, lying in a heap, still strapped to your feet, or still strapped to the pedals, lying on the floor. And uh, yeah, it's not the most graceful way to do it. It's not making me any more up for it. I've got to say, all of this information, <laughs> I appreciate it. But I mean, I'm sure there will be some sort of summer series of that. We'll get you where, in. We'll get where you I try and do that. a bunch of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If that, I mean, that would be amazing. Yeah, if I'll you were to be the one that taught me how to do it, Definitely. I'm sure they'd absolutely love that. Definitely. Matt will be there too. 
I can't remember, Chris, if I told you this one on a previous one, but I, one of the, I went through a period of sort of trying out the different sports for features. It's just a sort of, we had an editor at the time who was slightly obsessed. So I went off with what was then Team Sky and did Perry roubaix So Reese, these are the cobblestone ones. Have you ever seen? So these incredibly tough road that's just all cobblestones, quite hard to ride on. So I went off and did that. So I rode with Team Sky on the flat, but as soon as they hit the cobblestones, they just disappeared. And my my thing basically yeah. ended with me just riding with some guy in a van, sympathetic. Even the other journalists had disappeared from me. And then I was so tired, I couldn't detach my feet at the end. So it just ended with me just slowly falling over. And there's just a photograph <laughs> that went with the feature of my lycra-clad arse in the air with the bicycle just above me and just looking, I don't know, <laughs> oh, no. so, so quite a bad moment. So I don't, I don't think professional cycling was for me. But. That's funny, the idea that you're like, you're going so slowly that suddenly you're being passed <laughs> by like ice cream cyclists <laughs> and those guys who are playing tonight's going to be a good night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was definitely the slowest of the slow there. It was, yeah, yeah, embarrassing. So in terms of comedy, how did you get into comedy? You were, I read you were, was it when you were a student? Is that when it all started for you? Yeah, before, well, yeah, I was, I was a pupil actually when I started. Uh -huh. I was in sixth form. So I was 17. And it's one of those things where I just like had in my head for a few years. I, I loved stand up and wanted to be a stand up, but I was like, ah, everyone's to be a stand up, you've got to be 40 because everyone who was a famous comedian was 40. And then a few people like Russell Howard, who was a bit younger, and Jack Whitehall, who was about 18 at the time, started emerging and just sort of showed me, oh, no, you don't have to, you can do it whenever you want. And I think I just sort of like looked up Jack Whitehall and how he had got into it and his CV, which was on the internet, was just all these competitions that he'd won. And I looked up the competitions. They were just ones that anyone could enter. And they were kind of open mic competitions, effectively. And what it felt like at the time, you then get into them and realize people doing them and winning them have been going for a few years and honing stuff. But all my first gigs were just, I just entered all those competitions because it was just like a good way to get stage time. Uh, my very first gig, actually, though, I had emailed this local venue that I knew did an open mic about six months earlier, probably when I was 16, saying, can I come and do stand-up? And they said, oh, we don't do this open mic anymore. So um, no, no, uh, because the gig doesn't exist. And then about six months after that, they sent me an email saying, oh, we're actually, we're doing another one. It's like a mixed thing. So it'll be music and like a poetry and all sorts of stuff. But you can come do stand-up there if you like. And I remember showing my mum this email and going, well, I guess I've just got to stop making excuses. And she went, you are 17. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, it's not like I've been putting this off my whole life. It's still a ridiculous <laughs> time to start. And then I just did that and it was like, you know, it's classic, it's a bit like everything, but you do one. It's the first one, isn't it? That's the one that you've got to get out of the way. And then you, you sort of can't stop. You get a bit obsessed with it. But I've been like writing jokes. Like I would watch like Jimmy Carr DVDs and then like write jokes afterwards. And there was an American comic called Dimitri Martin, who I used to watch a lot. And I'd like watch him and then write jokes, like not the same jokes, but just kind of, I guess, kind of in their voice, kind of one liners. And so my first few gigs were all just me, were just me doing the kind of one liners in the style of people I'd admired. And it takes years, obviously, to get rid of all of that and start doing your own thing. But I did that. And then I went to uni pretty quickly after that. And then my like I chose the city I went to university in off the back like, on the basis of where it would be good to do comedy. And so I was in Manchester, which was like a great place to start doing comedy, because if you start in London, for example, you kind of have to do open mics all the time. And open mics aren't a great place to thrive because the audience are just other open micers. Whereas in Manchester, there weren't really any open mics when I started. There was like one or two, but mostly it was like you can do five minutes on a professional gig. So all the other acts are doing like paid 20 minutes. They've been going for 10, 15 years. They're proper headliners. 
And then you've got to be as, for five minutes, you've almost got to be as good as them, or you've at least got to not ruin the evening. So the audience have an expectation because it's a professional night. So even though you're only going on for five minutes and you're in the middle, which is a bit easier, still, it's not like an open mic where like any competence in your head and shoulders above the rest, these gigs, so it's the opposite of my footballing uh, career, actually, where it's like, no, I wanted to be in with those guys to, you know, so that you can get up to their level and you can just watch people who are doing it properly. Um, and then after I came back from uni, I sort of like did a couple of Edinburgh's and then well, I did it. I did a showcase show in Edinburgh. And then after that, I was just sort of like getting paid enough to then just basically be a pro comic straight Amazing. after uni. Living the dream. It's a grad job, effectively. <laughs> so what what is, um, you know, compared to sport where you said you would try it for a little bit and then now we want to try something else, get get all the gear, not, you know, not wanting to push yourself to that next mm. level. Was it just because you enjoyed it? Was it because you were good at it? What was it about comedy that made you stick with it? It's a good question. I don't really know. I mean, I probably did feel like I was quite good at it at the time. I wouldn't back any of the jokes I said now. I wouldn't now say I was brilliant back then because I was obviously terrible as so many people are when they start. But I think it was like it was going well. The good thing about comedy is the, the sort of instant feedback. It felt like it was easier to improve quicker as well in comedy, I think, because it's instant feedback. And, you know, literally one night you can say a line and it can go OK. And the next day and sometimes even, you know, in the same night, you can do another gig. You can tweak it slightly and it goes better. And I guess that it would be the equivalent of being at the driving range and changing your grip slightly and then hitting a much better one. But like how quickly that would happen was really satisfying that you could just go like, oh, I can literally see myself improving. And obviously, so much of it's confidence and confidence only improves by doing it loads. So I think, I don't know, but people say it's like, you know, you get the bug for it. And I guess I just didn't get the bug for it with the sports and all the other stuff I was trying. And this is the first thing I did. My childhood felt a lot like it was like loads of trial and error. Try, okay, try everything. And then what is the thing that you you just have to keep doing? And then this was the first example of that where I was like, I cannot stop. I just can't stop doing this. I'm going to have to keep doing this. And it, sort it of still is. Is it the drug of that, that the instant feedback, that laughter? Is that, I mean, I guess it must feel amazing to have the whole room responding immediately to something you've said to get that laughter back. Is that, is that what keeps pushing you on? Like in sport, you know, it's whether it's say golf, it's that one shot, that one drive, that's the thing mm. that you come back for. Is it purely just the laughter, the reaction from the audience? Not anymore. Now for me, it's the, uh, it's the kind of building of something. So I think, you know, I've had some, I've, had, I've done other projects that didn't have a live audience and stuff that I still wrote and thought was like a really funny thing. I, wrote. I did this radio show series on Radio 4 that didn't have an audience and I was just like so happy with it. And that I realized then that it was like, no, the feeling was, you know, the feeling I get now of coming up with something great is just as good, maybe because I value my opinion so much over an audience <laughs> because the amount of times I'm like no that is funny actually <laughs> you might be sat there silently but it's brilliant and I know better than you because I've been doing this 15 years and you've been in an audience for 10 minutes so you don't know what you're talking about I mean these are genuine words I probably said on stage um, it's the building of something and there's something really satisfying about like it's, it feels kind of like being in the lab the whole thing of like um I, I love my favorite time in comedy, my favorite time to be a comedian. Obviously, going on tour is fantastic. You've got this finished product you want to show people. People are really excited for a night out and they're there to see you. It's really good fun. But to me, the early work in progress is when you're building a new tour 
and the deadline isn't in sight, right? So it's not, there's no pressure of like, this has to be ready in a month or in two months where you'll really then start going like, ah, it has to work, get rid of anything that's, you know, a bit pie in the sky of an idea. When it's early days and it's just ideas, it's just, let's go out there and see if there's anything here. And it's just sort of you, you're in a small room, it's just you in the crowd and you're just going, this is what was in my head. Here's how I've tried, I'm going to try and communicate it. Okay, some of that was really good. Some of it wasn't. Let's go back to the off to, you know, go back to my desk, work on it a bit more, go back and do it again. Those periods are the bits where I'm like, where I love it the most and it's the most exciting. So I think that is, that's now what keeps me doing it. What keeps me, you know, writing a new show every couple of years is because the process, obviously the process, a bit like I was talking about with, you know, golf, you build a show and from nothing, you build it and you can get to an hour quite quickly of stuff that works and is good. Then obviously you have, you ruin it. It's a bit like the whole thing of like, oh, you learn how to do it properly and therefore you ruin your swing for a bit before it gets better. It has to go through this period of being horrible and rubbish for a while. And all the jokes that worked a month ago stop working just because there's something, some light has got out in your eyes when you say them because you're not excited anymore. And you've got to find a way to make them work without that passion and without that excitement but also you've got to find a way to have that passion and excitement as much as possible and be present and all that sort of stuff but definitely my pro the way i do it all the time is i get really excited build this show it's looking really good i'm six months ahead of schedule i've got an hour here i've got an hour and a half here oh my god and then suddenly as it gets closer you just go i've got 10 minutes actually this is all shit and i hate it <laughs> <laughs> and then but it's getting through that bit it's always about two months two months out from the show and then I spend a horrible two months before the show has to start. It's getting through that two months that makes it 50% better than it would have been if I'd have just been like, cool, finished, do it now. Okay. And that is satisfying, but it's the early bit that's the most satisfying. And the whole creative process, are you constantly looking, you know, can you ever just relax or is your brain always looking around for observations of things, thinking about, oh, that could be a joke, that could be a, a theme, this could be something I could be using in the future. You know, is it, do you, are you able to switch off from it or is it like for me in sport, my brain, I didn't realize it until I retired. My brain was constantly thinking about it 24 seven about mm. what I've just done, what I'm about to do, the next training session, how I'm feeling, recovering. Right, you know, right. You, there, there's a sublimate, there's a, this kind of, um, without realizing it, you're constantly thinking about it. Or is it the same in comedy? I think it's a bit of a zone. So that, um, that sort of two month period I was talking about where you know that the show's coming up, you're going on tour really soon and you're kind of trying to fix your show. I wake up thinking about it. I go to sleep thinking about it and thinking about what can I do with that bit? Why doesn't that work? Structure needs to change there. Da, da, da. And obviously it makes it very difficult to get to sleep and is at not at all relaxing and just very stressful. It's just any moment of silence, basically. I'm just doing that. But it's, that's because you're in the zone of the show. So you're in full show mode. Now, for example, I'm on tour and I've been on tour for since February. So for a while and the tour goes on till the end of the year. I haven't thought of a joke for fucking ages. <laughs> I can't think of anything now because I have sort of switched it off. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I ad lib loads in the show and I riff with the crowd and stuff like that and talk about, you know, the town or whatever. But in terms of like actually coming up with an idea for a routine, I'm not in the zone anymore. So I've now I've sort of like years ago, it used to be everything can be a joke. And now it's like, no, no, it's quite, I can do it quite focused when I'm in the, the sort of creative mode. I can go, no, I'm coming up with ideas for stand up. And now I'm not because I'm doing the stand up. So I am able to switch off now, actually, which is really obviously very handy. But yeah, once you're in that two month period, I absolutely can't get out of it and it ruins everything.
What's it like, though, at the end of a tour when you know you're not going to do that material anymore? Is that, is that difficult? Mm. Is it, I don't know, like a, almost a bereavement process or are you, are you done with it at that point? You've done it for, for so long, you're ready to do something else? Or? Yeah, somewhere in between. So like because you sort of go back to mixed bill gigs, or I do anyway, I sort of do a bunch of mixed bill gigs. Um, I sort of do them in between. I'm in a bit of a break of the tour now doing mixed bills at the moment. And you do 20 minutes on a mixed bill mm. typically of maybe 30 sometimes. But the show, the tour show is an hour and 15 minutes. And so what happens is like, it's kind of the ideal situation because probably by the end of a tour, there's about 20 minutes left of it that you like. So you know what I mean? You're like, you just pit, you just go, well, this I'd be happy to keep saying because this, this was always great. And it wasn't, there was no topicality to it. It didn't feel zeitgeisty or whatever. This could just normal stand up. And you think, God, but if I had to go and do the other 40 minutes, then I would be phoning it in massively. I'd be dead behind the eyes. <laughs> and they'd all know I wasn't present in the room and all that sort of stuff. So there's a little bit of that. These days as well, people like, you know, there's obviously the Netflix special, but that's not everyone can get those. They're very difficult to come by, especially for British stand-ups. People tend to self-produce, self-film their shows. And once you do that, that sort of feels like the full stop of it. So you get to go, I filmed it. And then when you put it out, you're like, that's no longer mine. Once it's out there, you don't want to be doing the material anymore mm. because obviously they know the punchlines. Um, so that's sort of, it's quite nice that you get the closure on it if you, if you bother to film it and do all of that sort of stuff. In terms of, in terms of sport, um, mm. the name of the podcast, Sporting Misadventures, we're trying sure. to find out things that have happened to you that um, maybe haven't gone quite so well. Anything in your sporting, sporting life that would be a sporting misadventure for you? Yeah, I've got a couple. So the first one is the reason I took up tennis in lockdown was a sort of revenge mission um, because there's just like a famous, it's not even really a story, but uh, on a family holiday, I was, I basically, we were playing doubles. All my family are quite naturally good at tennis and I'm not. And we were playing doubles, uh, my mother and father and my brother. And I think I was just in, I just got in an absolute tears about it, had a real tantrum because I was just, every shot of mine, I think was going into the net or whatever. And I really like full tantrum and really cries on this holiday about being bad at tennis. The twist being, I think I was like 15. Um, so it sounds like I was nine <laughs> and going back. I think I was 15. <laughs> and I was worth going back. So it's like extra embarrassing. And there was other people around and stuff as well. So like, it was just awful. And then this opportunity arose in the pandemic with a tennis court in this park opposite my house, coaching available and tennis being Event, like one of the few things we were allowed to do i was like this is it this is where my rocky montage begins <laughs> as i get really good i'm going to pay to be good at tennis and then i will play against my family and i will destroy them <laughs> and what happened is i did get okay i got like pretty competent at tennis started beating my friends that i've been playing with who before i was doing the lessons were beating me i had a proper swing or whatever and stuff like that and i knew you know, how to do a two-handed backhand and all that sort of stuff. And some tactics. It never got arranged. My family never ex took up my invitation. I think uh, they were intimidated. But it's another example of I quickly spent a fortune on several tennis rackets, great tennis clothes. <laughs> all the same racket Roger Federer has, of course. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I just did all of that immediately. And then really committed to these. And I was living in northwest London at the time, so these lessons weren't cheap. I mean, it was a real, it really had to pay off. 
we've not played yet and I played tennis the other day and a bit like the golf situation I've forgotten everything and I'm back to being out <laughs> <laughs> so it is a nightmare uh... um yeah but you know it was all based on revenge on my own family but that's what drives everyone forward isn't it yeah you exactly something you got a negative emotion <laughs> yeah exactly toxic let's be toxic about it <laughs> um and the other one this isn't necessarily sport but this is a god a, a very embarrassing thing that happened to me which is i was in this is also i think towards the end of the pandemic um i was in the gym and uh i was on that um that leg machine that um you very rarely see men using where you sort of are moving your thighs in and out you know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah very the thigh, the hip, hip, hip adductor or the hip yeah, adductor. Yeah. yeah 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 that thing and yeah. um i I'd, I'd never used it before but I had just completed three sets on it and I'd gone heavy as well. And then I was just resting. I was doing that thing people do in the gym. It's very annoying. I was just sort of resting on there, just looking at my phone while still sat on the machine. And I had head noise cancelling headphones in. And then suddenly I feel a hand on my shoulder and I assume it's someone saying like, are you still using this machine? Can I use it? And I was going to say, oh, very sorry. And I turn around and it is the personal trainer of the gym, um, the guy who sort of runs the gym, who I've seen around loads. And then I turn back around and in front of me, is about 20 13 year old school children who are all staring at me and the default position of this machine is legs open okay <laughs> it's not an ideal position to be in legs akimbo exactly with 20 <laughs> children in front of you wearing quite short shorts and suddenly <laughs> i take out a headphone and this guy the personal trainer goes um and of course this gentleman will give us a demonstration of how to use this one and I was like, oh, 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 God. and I'd look around and I'd seen that there was people all around the gym now sort of watching this as well and realized, oh, they've been on a like tour of the gym and been shown by him how to use most machines. But I just happened to be on this one. Now, bear in mind, I had just done three really heavy sets of this. So there was not a lot of energy left in my thighs, um, <laughs> but I went for it. I was just like committed and I was like, oh, God. I was just thinking, don't make eye contact with any of these children while doing this. So I was just basically staring at the sky, closing my eyes theatrically as if, you know, as if it was so painful. And I did it. And actually, he's, this person trainer was like, yep, perfect form here. You want to go slow uh, on the out and quick when coming in, explosive when coming in, but slow on the out. And I was like, that is not, that is out of pure necessity. I mean, I wasn't doing that. It's any kind of perfect form. Um, and then at the end of it, he went, the person, I finished. And then he went, um, brilliant. Uh, kids, give this gentleman a round of applause. Now, listen, I've had some reluctant rounds of applause in my time, but <laughs> never to this degree. My, I think one kid went like that and then saw that no one else was going to do it. And uh, I didn't even get like a slow hand clap, ironically. It was just hideous. And then they all just sort of shuffled off and then I left the gym. And I genuinely think I, I'm pretty sure I never went back to that gym. <laughs> Have you ever noticed when people are on weights machines, when they finish, so they say they're doing a couple of sets, maybe three or four sets, I've, the number of times I've spotted it, and I've, I've started to do it now on purpose, I'll just sit and wait and watch. Usually, it's, it's always men, without fail. When they finish on the machine, they'll take the pin out and put it into a heavy weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so the person after <laughs> them goes, wow, he must be wow. really strong. What a, <laughs> what a barley strong bloke. I can't believe he's lifting that weight. I've seen it happen at hundreds, yeah, of, yeah. It's, it's, you know, hundreds of times over the years. Not not every single person, but it's it's only ever men that I've seen do it. Like it's, I don't know yeah, what it is. It's I've a, seen it's a, it. It's a kind of macho thing of, yeah, I'm pretty strong. Um, Listen, but... I've seen it, and I confess, I've done it. I don't, <laughs> I don't do it regularly, <laughs> but I definitely have done it once or twice in the past. When someone <laughs> said, "How many have you got left?" and I know they're using it next, 
I've definitely done it in the past. I'm a little more secure now, you know. I'm like, <laughs> now that you can impress 13 year olds with your yeah, 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 exactly. Now I've had yeah. one clap from one 13 year old, you know. I'm uh, oh, I'm pretty confident these days. Kind of a big deal, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. It's been lovely. Um, sort of rather so flown, flown by, but um, yeah, it's been good to chat, and you've got plenty of sporting tales as well. And here's to hopefully Tottenham being a bit better for you next season. Yes, please. That'd be lovely. And hopefully we get to do another Team GB podcast and you can teach me how to overcome my fear of the velodrome. Yeah, definitely. Definitely up for that. And yeah, th- thanks, Reese. That was awesome. And uh, yeah, good luck with the rest of your tour. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Take lovely care. Stuff. See you some See other ya. time. Thanks See very much. Bye-bye. Take bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.